Welcome to My Classic Soul, the podcast dedicated to the very best of classic soul and R&B music. I'm Bethany Dawson and joining me today is a man often referred to as the British Ambassador of Soul, a title I would say has certainly been earned, Mr David Nathan. Hi David. Hi Bethany. Today we're going to focus on a classic album that is seeing a deluxe reissue on vinyl thanks to vinyl subscription company Vinyl Me Please and that is Aretha Franklin's iconic Atlantic Records debut album I Never Loved a Man The Way I Love You. So David, when did you first come across Aretha's music? Mm. Well, I I first heard it uh, before she was on Atlantic. Um, She was with Columbia Records and she had been with Columbia Records. She started in 1960. And I first heard her uh, music actually, um, honestly, on a beach in Littlehampton in in England. And how I heard it uh, was because I was a member of a a fan club of another artist and we had a fan club gathering and someone brought a a battery operated uh, record player and they put on this album, uh, which was an Aretha Franklin album called Running Out of Fools from 1964. And there was a particular, uh, it was a, she did a lot of color versions on there. And one of them was uh, my favorite song at the time, which was Walk On By, uh, popularized, of course, by Dionne Warwick in America, Dionne Warwick in England. And um, my first reaction was, who's that? Who is that? Wow. And uh, they said, well, this is mispronounced it as a Retha Franklin. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so that was the first time I heard her. And then I um, just got more interested in finding out about, about her music. And, um, you know, I was a teenager at the time. And uh, I managed to uh, get all of her Columbia albums, most of which were imports because they weren't released in Britain. So I was already a, a fan before her first Atlantic record came out. Yes, so I was so like smitten by her music. I mean, I was obviously listening to some other artists at the time. We would call R and B artists, not soul, because soul music wasn't soul wasn't the the common uh, verbiage at the time. I wrote a letter to her, care of her father at his church, because her father was a very famous minister, Reverend Seal Franklin. So I just sent this letter saying, you know, to, to Miss A. Franklin, care of Reverend Seal Franklin, New Bethel Baptist Church, Detroit, Michigan. Because back in then, those days, I mean, you know, could get, where would you get, get an address for a church in Detroit? <laughs> Because we're talking 1966, right? And uh, so one day I got le- I got this letter back, and you know, I was shocked. My dad said, "Oh, David, letter from America." I'm like, "Oh, what, what?" what? And here was this envelope uh, from Aretha, and saying, "Yeah, I've got your letters, and um, you know, I didn't have any fans in England, and I'm hoping to come there soon." And so that was that. And then towards the end of that year, same year, 1966, I remember I used to see Billboard magazine every now and again and then an announcement that Aretha had signed to Atlantic Records and was a po- photograph of her with Jerry Wexler who was going to be a producer and her manager at the time husband Ted and um, about a month after that I was uh, I co-owned a record shop with uh, two other people uh, and our Christmas bonus was calling someone in America 
our favorite artist, whoever that might be, and I, I called Aretha. And uh, I didn't call it directly. I had to go through the operator. <laughs> and then the bottom line is, uh, you know, we talked a little bit then about the fact that she had signed to Atlantic. And she was very excited about that she was be going into the studio the following month, which would be January of 1967. And um, I know it's a little cliche, but the rest is history. I mean, she didn't know, I certainly didn't know, and I think anyone knew that what she was about to do was change her entire life by going recording this first album for Atlantic. And do you remember when you actually heard this Atlantic debut from Aretha for the first time? I do remember the first time I heard the the, the debut and, and, and how it it came about in a kind of circuitous way. Um, at the time, I had a little bit of a dispute with my one of my partners in the record shop, so I left and for a short period of time. And during the time period, happened to be when Aretha's album came out. But at that at that time, I went to my local record shop, which was in Fulham, where I lived. And uh, they imported records, and I said, do you have the, this single by Aretha Franklin? Could I never love the man the way I love you? And they said, oh, well, actually, we just got the LP. I'm like, you're kidding. said to my mum, oh, oh, can I get some money? I need to buy this this LP. Is it important? She's like, oh, it's too much money. I said, but yeah, you understand. So that's literally what happened. I went back to the record shop, got the LP, brought it home, and I actually remember putting the record in my record player in my bedroom. And the moment I heard the first note of respect, I like, Wow. the same Aretha Franklin I mean because she didn't it, of course it's the same voice but the setting was different like the music was different from what she had done at Columbia it was so like like groove and, and just she was it was oh, wow by the time I finished playing side one I was just can I use a British term absolutely please we are do. in London I was gobsmacked <laughs> <laughs> for our American our American friends, uh, that means blown away. <laughs> and you mentioned you still vividly remember the first time you heard the first notes on Respect. Did you have any idea listening then that it would go on to have such a lasting impact and be one of the most iconic songs of all time? I absolutely didn't think I didn't. I didn't think Respect. Um, I liked it. I mean, I, it wasn't my, initially wasn't my favourite song on the album. I just thought, wow, this is great. You know, this is the sounds really kind of groovy here and in a different kind of way than I'd ever heard her before. And um, I was familiar with the song uh, through Otis Redding and his version is very, very different. No, but I did not have any idea and remotely that it would become like really her anthem for the whole of her life. Um, yeah. So, so no, I didn't think that. The, the other songs on there that were the ones that I really zeroed in on. And what, what would you say your number one track on that record is? Well, I would have to say it's the title track. Um, I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You. And 
it, just because um, it, it's 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 firstly it's a kind of dramatic record. I mean, it's the, just the way it starts, you know, and then uh, it sounds so much like a personal testimony. I mean, respect. I mean, it was great, but I didn't. When I heard I Never Loved a Man, it sounded like she really this. She was talking about her own life. Now she didn't write the song, so. Um, you know, and for me personally, it also has some resonance with whatever I was dealing with at the time in my own life. So, I it was like a, yeah. I mean, I played that song like. I don't know. I probably wore that song out on the groove of the record. And I was kind of surprised that, um, to be honest with you, that it was such a massive hit in America. It wasn't a hit in Britain. Um, but in America, it just, it really gave Aretha the, f- she just, it completely like opened the whole doors to her success. This is the album that brought Aretha to a much wider audience. Um, what was the impact of this record to the globe and in particular, of course, uh, America from where she uh, originates? She was not like a household name in the same way that some of the other artists of that time period, a lot of the Motown artists, you know, um, Mary Wells, the Supremes, the Four Tops. She was not in that kind of ilk of, of, of a known hit maker. So this record... Um, it was really people, for many people, it was their introduction to Aretha Franklin. They had never really, many people had never heard of her. It broke the dam, so to speak. She, she just, and, and then the fact that the songs were, sounded like so much like a personal testimony. I mean, you know, and I think that the, particularly for, um, African-American women at the time, she became like this symbol because she was singing in a way that, uh, you know, she, I mean, we take even a song like Dr. Feelgood, which is, you know, there's no question that that's about sex. about going to the doctor and, and, and um, you know she was just like being really like straight up about that in a way that was had not really been done as as upfront you could say and you, we're talking about the time period 1967 and you know a lot of for a lot of people it was kind of a time of like you know fighting for freedom and you know, we're talking about the civil rights era. We're talking about a lot of different things that were happening all at the same time in the 60s. So she became like this, that album represented like freedom for people, for, for, for women. There's a whole, there are many different parts of American society that responded to that. And, um, you know, I Never Loved a Man is really even the song, the title song is really about, uh, you know, she loves someone, but she knows that they're a cheat. And how do you, how does she reconcile the, you know, uh, even if you listen to the lyrics, it's like really like written, almost like written for her. Um, and just so some of the other songs, Do Right Woman, Do Right Man, which is really along the same lines. A lot of the songs are really about relationships. I mean, there's only one song on the album that's really about um, anything other than that, which is a change is going to come, which is really about, which I, I, again, we could talk a little bit about that too, because I think that that was very symbolic as the last track on that album. There's an old friend that I once heard say 
because it really the last part of how she performs that uh, in, in, on the recording she actually ad-libs and says I believe this evening my change has come and she's referring to her life and her, well, her career I remember listening to it and going like wow that's like you know she's saying yeah I know I'm now you know something's changed I'm with this new record company and you can just hear it in the fact that she's accompanying herself on the piano and it's her arrangements I mean that's the other thing is you know this is a woman who's now you know doing her own arrangements in a way that she hadn't done at Columbia so she was you know, driving the rhythm section with by playing piano, uh, which made her also very revolutionary. There weren't any other women of that time period, or at least not African-American women in particular, that you could say, well, you know, they would sit at the piano. Uh, the only one that comes to mind at that time was Nina Simone, who would sit at the piano and really was the how the r- arrangements got created was around her at the piano. And Aretha was really the only one, and she took it even beyond wherever Nina Simone took it in America. Yeah, you can't think of Atlantic Records without Aretha, and this album was released in 1967, so over 50 years old, and yet people still discover it today and it's still so relevant and so fresh and it's so it brings so much emotion into people's lives so how did you come to find the original demos oh wow that's an interesting story i mean that you know i I don't know how to kind of explain that in a anything other than a cosmic sense (laughs) so i will after I Never Loved a Man came out and then all the subsequent albums. I mean, I I just loved all the Atlantic, pretty much all the Atlantic recordings. And then at some point, within a few years of that, I became a a working music journalist writing for Blues and Soul magazine here in London. And um, so then fast forward many decades and I'd done a several interviews with Aretha. I got to know her a little bit. And so um, I was kind of known as an Aretha-cologist. What a title. Yes, indeed. And um, in about, I think, 2004, I was hired by Rhino Records, um, which is the catalog division of Warner Music, to do some vault research. And it was on some different things, but in particular, um, you know, the actual story is that the, the tapes had been moved from uh, New York to Burbank, um, and they needed to sort them all out. And there were several boxes that they didn't know exactly what was in them, and but they just had the name Aretha Franklin or whoever the artist was on the spine of the box. So I was doing my vault research and going up and down these massive aisles of tapes. It was like a, I was like a vault, I, I like, I like a vault archaeologist (laughs) and I loved it I was like oh man so I come across this box and it's like this seven inch real box and it doesn't have anything no song titles on it just says Aretha Franklin on the spine and the front of the box says from Ted White to Jerry Wexler and of course knowing who those people were knowing that Jerry Wex is the guy who signed Aretha to Atlantic and her producer, main producer Atlantic, and knowing that Ted White was her at that time manager, husband, husband manager. I don't know what was in the box, but I knew this could probably be something interesting. So they sent it off to be um, transferred to uh, a, a, what's called a reference disc, and I got the reference disc back. 
And I actually was speechless because when I put it on, because uh, the guy had transferred the titles once he listened to them, like the, the engineer who was transferring them, as best he could, he figured out what the titles were. And I was listening to the demos of Aretha singing Dr. Feelgood and I Never Loved a Man and some other songs. Basically, her at the piano with a little rhythm section. It sounded like it almost like it was probably done in her home or somewhere, a local Detroit uh, studio. I mean, I think it was probably done in her home. It sounds very kind of rudimentary, uh, but great. And there is a drama, so maybe it wasn't in her home. But anyway, the point being that um, those were the demos. And I, did, I was like, wow. I mean, I'm listening to because it, it did have a date on it, like 1966. So that was the tape that Ted White had sent to Jerry Wexler to listen to what Aretha was considering or some songs that gave him, give him some idea of what she might have wanted to do. So that would have been happened probably around the same time I spoke to her, like November, December of 1966. Thank God they sent the tape. Yeah. Well, the fact is no one knew what it was. It was literally a tape box and no one... To the, it wasn't catalogued anywhere. It was just a tape box. It's catalogued now, of course. But yeah, I mean, yeah, well, it probably was a, I'm sure that it was in Jerry Wexler's office at Atlantic. And they probably at some point got all the tapes and just put them in the library and in, in the tape vault in, in, in New York. And there, and there, and I was the guy who found it. I love the anticipation of you sending it off, not knowing what's in this oh, mysterious no, little no. package. Like, wow. And there's some other songs on there. There's a, a version of a song she recorded later for uh, Arista, uh, a, a version of a Sam and Dave song called Hold On, I'm Coming. It was a stack song. Uh, some other things in there too. So what, what else was in the vault? Were there any images of Aretha in there you'd maybe not seen before? There were not. There weren't any, because the, the vault was really just a tape vault. But I will say something about that. I and mean, since you mentioned about images, the cover of her album, of that first album, as much as I love the music, the, there was something about the look her, the way they took that photograph or the, the pose in that photograph, there's a kind of, it's like a wistfulness or a kind of something, like a, almost like a set. I, I mean, I, it, I don't know how they, the, the photographer did that or, or what he asked her to think about or what it was, but it's almost like the cover reflects that song title. Yeah, I, I think it's very ethereal, it's very beautiful, it's very reflective, and it, it sums it sums up the purity and the emotional connectivity to the album mm. more than... Well, you Some other covers, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, the other thing too I was going to say is that, that, that there, there was a photo session, so there are other photographs from there which have subsequently been seen where she's smiling and laughing and, you know, it's not all like wistful kind of this kind of sad not a sadness but reflective reflective yeah reflective is the, the right word for that yeah and so the other photographs are not like that but I, I mean I've seen them but they, I never found them in the vault they were wherever they were <laughs> we're going to take a quick break for some shopkeeping but stay tuned because we'll be right back Now 
available for pre-order exclusively at soulmusic.com. The 50th anniversary edition of First Take, Roberta Flack's 1969 debut album for Atlantic Records. First Take has been remastered and expanded to a two-CD, one-LP box set, featuring the original eight-track album plus 16 bonus tracks. First Take is a beautiful soul-jazz hybrid that includes the number one hit song, The First Time Ever I Saw Your Face, and includes famous jazz luminaries such as Ron Carter, Benny Powell, and Selden Powell as sidemen. Featured in the 1971 Clint Eastwood movie Play Misty For Me, the popularity of The First Time Ever I Saw Your Face helped drive her debut album to number one on both the Billboard album chart and the R&B album chart. Newly remastered and expanded, this deluxe 50th anniversary edition includes 16 bonus tracks, 12 of which are previously unreleased, totaling nearly an hour of never-before-heard Roberta Flack music. Also included in this deluxe set is the original vinyl album, newly remastered and pressed on 140-gram vinyl. It's accompanied with a detailed essay by noted soul historian David Nathan, all beautifully packaged in a 12x12 hardback book. Roberta Flack's first take, the 50th anniversary edition, is now available for pre-order exclusively at soulmusic.com. Welcome back. And talking about the tracks on the album, um, having spoken to Aretha, are there any tracks in particular she ever had an affinity for, she particularly loved? Did she ever uh, speak about that? Um, in, in conversations we had, we didn't really, talk at, that, at, at that time, we didn't, we, I didn't do any interviews with her at that time, so I didn't really talk to her about anything particularly about those album, about that album. The one thing she would um, say in conversations when people did interview her at that time is that uh, she knew that people assumed that much of the, of the music was autobiographical. And she would downplay that and say, well, you know, people can speculate that that's true. Uh, and then, you know, some of the songs are, are just based on personal observa- you know, observation. Uh, I put, I think, honestly, that a lot of those songs were really, they were autobiographical. She wasn't necessarily going to tell everybody that. Um, but, but I think that um, we, we talked about I Never Loved a Man. We talked about Change Is Going to Come, that they seem to me... Well, she didn't write a change is going to come, but it seemed like it was reflective of her life at the time and what she was, you know, this whole thing of new record company and so on. And I think some of the other ones, yeah, I, th- I think they were they were more personal. I mean, so, and certainly we talked, I, I mentioned about Dr. Feelgood. I don't think any, you could write a song like that. She co-wrote with her husband and, and the way she performs it, I don't think that was something from observation <laughs> it might be like Aretha, real Aretha felt that one yes I think it might be real that might be real and, and no she didn't talk to me particularly about those songs but um, yeah that's how I heard the album and I think a lot of people heard it as uh, like her personal testimony yeah my favourite song on the record is actually Good Times Yeah. 
I think yeah. it's, I think it's just a full-on groover. I dare anyone to listen to the chorus yeah. and not sing along. I'm personally not going to sing it because okay. we, we may offend. Sure. I may offend some people <laughs> on this one. <laughs> but you're right, absolutely. And, and so the, this is good. 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 You brought that up because because that's a Sam Cooke song. As, mm-hmm. as is, a change is going to come. And, and, and you know, Sam Cooke played an important role in Aretha's life. Um, you know, she uh, did. Uh, confess many years later in her autobiography that she had a mad crush on him. Um, well, look at him. Well, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think she was the only person who had a crush on him, but anyway, she had a crush on him, but she knew him. I mean, it wasn't like a crush from afar. And, you know, he was on the road with her as part of a gospel group that he was in called the Soul Stirrers. So she, and he was also the person that she says really um, inspired her to go from gospel music into a, what we have called a secular career and um but yeah she she didn't make any um any uh any pretense about uh, finding him as americans might say fine <laughs> Um, and you speak about covers. On this album, if you could get any artist to record any track, what would you go for? Wow. If I could get any artist to cover any track, you mean like, is there a song that I think someone could cover? That you'd like to hear their, their interpretation of? No. Just Aretha, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, but I will say something about one other cover that is on there. <laughs> You know, which was the, the, the second track, uh, which is a Ray Charles song, Drown in My Own Tears. I think that when I heard that, because this is the second track, uh, you know, again, I like respect. I was kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. But Drowning My Own Tears for me is like so, it's deep. It's like really deep. The way she sings that and the way they arranged the backgrounds and so on, it was so, um, it got me. That actually is the track that got me even before I heard I Never Loved a Man. I was like, when I heard that, I I couldn't compare it to anything I'd ever heard before. A new side to Aretha. A new side to yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, what happened here? She signed a record company now. She's like, I didn't know she could perform that. I mean, I, I didn't had, had no reference for her. Um, it was so kind of raw and emotional. And, you know, Jerry Wexler, the producer, says that basically what he did was he just had a said Aretha just sat at the piano and just he says I took her back to church well you can't take someone back to church because they were still in the church but I mean but he basically was saying she he he gave her the free reign to fully express herself in the way that he knew she probably could but had never fully been able to do at Columbia so it's kind of like unleashing the emotion and the passion and really that's the word that really comes to mind most is like there's so much passion in that album and you mentioned good times and she sounds like she's having a great time I mean that that's it you know and there's other things they like save me which is um, uh, a song she co-wrote with King Curtis and uh, King Curtis is a saxophone player on Atlantic very well known at the time and um, he went on the road with her also at some point uh, as one of her as her music director But anyway, uh, this uh, Save Me is, uh, 
if you, I never understood the words of it completely because it's referencing a lot of comic uh, characters. You have to kind of get the words in front of you, like the Cape Crusader, Batman. Is she mentions Batman in it? I mean, yeah. And it's kind of like, wow, you know. And and, and the song is also, you know, it's also kind of joyous. It's not so the thing. The thing's great about this. You know, now now we've got me talking about this album. I'm kind of going back to thinking about it. It isn't just this kind of album of heartbreak and oh poor me and you know I've got this man who's you know cheating on me and you know I, I need to be a do right woman and I need respect it's not just that it's also kind of joy and, and, and celebration and it's all those different aspects of her that we never really got to hear before and the aspects of everyone everyone's life everyone goes through light and shade and to see an artist, I guess, record that in 1967, especially from her background and minority and how it was in America. It's, it is quite mind-blowing. To, you f- often forget, you will, it's easy to forget that this was recorded in 1967. Yeah, and, and, and you, made, you made a good point, you know, because the, the, the fact is that, and I do tell people this, I say there is a before Aretha and there's an after Aretha because she didn't... <laughs> Because of the nature of the recording and because of that album, it really was like a groundbreaking album. It really was unlike anything that had gone before it. I mean, I can't think of anybody else who had done anything like that uh, in terms of being someone who's accompanying themselves at the piano, doing the arrangements, uh, the vocal arrangements, um, you know, uh, know, co-writing some of the songs and really is like, it's like a a a female artist and we, we kind of forget, I think, that back then... Regardless of, 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 you know, African-American, Caucasian, whoever, I mean, a female recording artist didn't have that kind of freedom to do that. I mean, you know, there were no, I mean, who else? I mean, you think of jazz singers, you know, Ella Fitzgerald, different people. I mean, they, they didn't accompany themselves. So it's kind of like... She was the, she was like a a pioneer, uh, and and you know I mean think of the other uh, you know female singers of the day, but they weren't as self-contained. That's the thing I want to say is that Aretha was a self-contained musician, singer, songwriter, and that wasn't that wasn't typical for women at all at that time. And we do forget that. I think in hindsight, we don't even think that, of course, women do that. You know, there's a whole you know, category of women of every decade who subsequently have done that. You can think of Annie Lennox. We can think, I mean, you can just go on and on. You know, Joni Mitchell. We can just go so many women who that we you know, don't think that's strange. That's not strange at all now. No, she was, yeah, undoubtedly groundbreaking. And what a legacy she went on to create for herself. So, David Nathan, for new fans discovering this album for the first time, what are the key three tracks? I know that's a hard one. Three tracks. Well, obviously, respect. But and if they were discovering it, in other words, so if we put respect aside, because pretty much anyone who would be discovering it might already have heard that. I'll allow that. Yeah, thanks so much. I'll allow that change. <laughs> 
So the three tracks, wow. I, I would probably go with the one you said, Good Times. I, I would balance it like I, I Never Loved a Man, Good Times. And the third one, um, I, I would say, depending on who was listening to it, Dr. Feelgood. Because that's like, you know, that's kind of a universal song that speaks about something that everyone deals with. So I guess, you know, and you know, just as one th- thing to say about that uh, song, people forget that that song actually originally on the original album, it has something in parentheses, as they say in America, and in England, brackets. It's actually called Dr. Feelgood, Love is a Serious Business. So if we took the, we put that into the equation, then I definitely suggest people hear that because we all know love can be a serious business. Ain't that the truth, Aretha? Ain't that the truth? <laughs> Everyone knows the track Respect. So it was originally recorded by a man. And yeah. then obviously Aretha is bringing her own spin to this and it's gone on to be a call to arms for women all around the world and they've taken this as an empowering anthem. What do you think about Respect and how, where it came from, really? Well, I, th- I think originally it wasn't, you know, I, I don't think that Aretha had any idea remotely that it would become what it became. Uh, and then I think that the little touches that she added to it, like spelling, like the R-E-S-P-C-T. That was her. Totally. I mean, that's not an Otis Redding. There's no R-E-S-P-E-C-T in Otis Redding's version. And spelling is important. Yes, it is. And there's no, um, there's no um, suck it to me. I mean, the funny thing about that suck it to me, you know, part of the, of the, of the end of the song um, is actually her with her sister Caroline and uh, Carolyn. Caroline? Caroline. Anyway. Uh, and um, I don't know, I think her other sister, might, I think her other sister Irma, her older sister, might have been involved in that too. But the point being, I think, I think it was the two of them, Aretha and her younger sister Carolyn, that they came up with this as a kind of a vocal part for the song. You know, it was a popular uh, expression at the time, suck it to me. Um, I don't know its derivation, but I, uh, Aretha later claimed that, oh, no, that was not meant to be like a sexual reference. That's just like, you know, that was kind of a Detroit, you know, it was in America. People use the term suck it to me. But come on now, you know, you know when I get home, suck, you know, suck it to me, suck it to me. Come on. It doesn't leave much in the imagination. But the, I get the thing, the thing that you, you were referencing is that it became an empowering an- anthem for women uh, throughout across the world. I mean, just really, um, and, and for everyone. I mean, you know, I, what we say is for, for women, but really I think it's about everyone, you know, wants respect. Everybody wants to feel like they're being respected, uh, that, you know, and, and if they're not being, that they want to, they're going to demand being respected. If nothing else, people want respect. And I think that it um, transcended Aretha's original intent and be, has become, you know, really the mo- song most associated with her. And um, it has become an anthem. And she has, you know, subsequently years and years later, she would talk about that she didn't, ex- she didn't expect that, um, but she's really happy to know that it's been used in that way. Very cool. If you could say anything to Aretha today about this album, the impact it's had on your life, what would it be? 
What would I say? I probably have said. I, in fact, I know I probably did say at some points in her life. I did tell her, you know, how how that album was just so you know, blew me away as a, a like a big like the start of a whole new uh, part of her life. I would say, you know, do you know how many lives you touched with that album? Do you know how many people really? Could identify with it and how many people you inspired um, and you really help people through many different situations that you went through that do are you aware of that that's what I would ask her um, I kind of know what the answer was already because I asked her the question similar to that many years later and she kind of didn't dismiss it but she said you know I don't I don't think in those terms I was just just doing I was just doing music I, I was creating music she didn't think she didn't think from like some place of like well I'm going you know I'm really going to change people's lives it was like I'm just telling my truth um, so I would thank her that's what I would do I would thank her for telling her truth thank you Aretha that's about it for this episode of My Classic Soul. Please join us again and we would love it if you could leave us a rating and a review on your favourite podcast platform. Also, make sure to follow My Classic Soul on Facebook and visit us at soulmusic.com. Until next time, I'm Bethany Dawson. Bye.